Hello and welcome to this special edition 538 curling podcast. My name is Neil Payne. I'm a senior sports writer here at 538. And uh, on the line, we have Nate Silver, editor-in-chief of 538. Hey, Nate. Hey, how, how is everyone? Uh, Nate, just for a second, uh, because our, our listeners can kind of hear that your audio quality isn't the highest, can you explain a little bit about where you are right now, actually, and what your situation is? So I'm a, on a tarmac at Bradley International Airport in, uh, I think, West Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. Uh, it's been a very, very long day of diverted flights and missed flights, and so it's not going to plan exactly, but, you know, we're making the best of it. Well, yeah, and, you know, that's just how committed Nate is to the cause, because right now we have uh, a little bit of a surprise in the studio with us. We have three members of the gold medal winning USA men's Olympic curling team. First up, we have John Schuster, the skip of the team. Hey, John. How's it going? We also have Tyler George. How you doing? How are you guys? And finally, we have... Matt Hamilton. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we're just kind of hanging out here. It's a Friday evening in the 538 studios. And since we're all so into curling over the past few weeks, and we're all so proud of what you guys did to bring home the gold to the U.S., we thought we'd all just gather and and talk about some curling here. Uh, So first of all, congratulations. How was the time in Pyeongchang over there in addition to, you know, winning the gold medal? How was the experience? Yeah, I mean, it, it was just like you hope the Olympic Games would be. There's just athletes everywhere focused on their sports, and Matt played some mixed doubles, so we got to be fans for a little while, and, and he got to get his feet wet, and then, you know, got on the ice and had a slow start and wrote kind of the the dream ending that uh, ended with this little gold medal that's sitting right over here, so uh, all in all, can't complain. Yeah. What was the experience like in terms of the other athletes? Did they kind of know who you guys were? Did they know anything about curling? That's actually a really awesome question. Um <laughs> So at the beginning of the event, we we talked to some of the other athletes, and we started to get to know them slowly as the events went on. And me playing first for mixed doubles, I got a little head start on the rest of the boys as far as recognition because I was on the ice longer. But by the end of it, and like while we're getting closer to our medal matches, we're getting like off the elevator as the men's hockey team's coming on, and they're cheering us on, like straight up clapping and hooting and hammer, hollering for hammer. us. Hammer, hammer, <laughs> hammer! It was it was just fantastic. Like, and the women's hockey team were were superstars. Uh, they won their own medal, and then aside from like all of the joy that they were feeling, they came when we saw them after they won their medal. They all they could talk about was like. How they're so excited for us to play in the gold medal game, and how they're we're trying to like congratulate them, like no, but tomorrow you're taking down Sweden. It was, it was just really fun, and uh, by the end of it, there was just such a great feeling of camaraderie and uh, teamwork that it's just going to be unrivaled in uh, probably the rest of my sports career. <laughs> I want to bring in Nate on this because as you guys were kind of doing that, Nate, you were watching all of this and you really got into curling. What what was it about curling that sort of drew you in and, and kind of fired up in addition to obviously the uh, patriotism of watching uh, the U.S. <laughs> succeed? I mean, it's probably because I grew up watching CBC. Um, uh, so I grew up in Michigan. We got CBC. And so we they had curling on all the time, like Manitoba versus Northern Ontario or whatever. Um, <laughs> so I just like the strategy, and, you know, I was excited. You know, Neil and I kind of at first were pretending that, like, the games were played at 3 p.m. our time when we realized eventually they were, like, actually, like, at 1 a.m. or 6 a.m. But I don't know, just it's a really cool sport, and, like, I've always kind of had this affection for it. 
Yeah, Matt, to that point, uh, at one point we tweeted at you during what we perceived to be a match that was happening in real time, but it actually was like 12 <laughs> hours afterward. And so when you liked our tweet, we were like, oh, my God, he did it during wow, the during the game. Don't put that past him, though. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you never know, and I just run back and take a quick break to look at my phone and check my following. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the great thing about curling is that it is sort of a deliberative, uh, strategic sport. And this being 538, we're all about the data and all about the kind of strategizing based on numbers. So I wanted to ask you guys, what kind of analytics did you guys use? First of all, did you use any? And, and was that something that maybe the coaches brought up with you or you yourselves looked at while you were planning, not just before the match, but even during if you came across a situation that warranted it? For me, they they actually give you stats reports after every single draw, so I, I try to look at that and you know maybe see like if there's a person on the other team that's potentially struggling or if one team is favoring throwing one turn over the other turn in a particular event. I mean, we know a lot of these teams can be play against them all the time, but yeah, that's that's something that I peek at almost every between every single game, and and we talk about it a lot too as a team about you know Sweden, we uh you know that we can go after a particular turn at a particular player and that kind of stuff, so. Um, we also have some other analytics that, that we sometimes use if, you know, say, okay, well, this team is really good at closing if they're in a really tight game. Or we got a guy at curlingzone.com actually that has all these stats that we were able to use. And, uh, I, I don't know that we used them incredibly a lot, but, uh, it's definitely something we have, uh, at our fingertips. I think Nate and I were looking at curling zone at one point and we, we were trying to kind of make heads or tails of what, what was going on there. Yeah. The guy who runs it is, uh name is Jerry Gertz and he is he's a wizard with some of these numbers he sat us down at our summer camp and explained to us where we sat in the as far as like elite players and at certain things like with the hammer without the hammer up by one with the hammer down by one with the hammer and he like went on for all of like the potential scoring scenarios and gave us like feedback like which positions we could like get better at which ones that we're really good at and we need to keep doing what we're doing and then he also gave us some info on other teams and those same kind of numbers. Like when a team has a two-point lead, do they tend to give it up or do they play really good defense and are able to maintain or even like add to that lead? And I'd be lying if I said we that didn't come into play at all. Obviously, you're still just playing the rocks in every shot, but there's definitely situations where we knew if we went out and played maybe a slightly more conservative strategy and kind of got into a rhythm that we could wait and maybe – take our opportunities a little later in the game instead of trying to start really fast. Nate, as a uh, analyst that was sort of watching from afar, were you kind of following some of the strategy and maybe thinking about like the numbers behind it? And also, did you have any things that maybe you would say, oh, if I were a curling analyst, I would kind of create a stat for curling that doesn't exist yet? Well, I want to know if, if that curling percentage stat is BS or not, because it seems kind of subjective. But it seems to me like you guys played a more aggressive style, especially early in the tournament. I want to know if there was a deliberate attempt to play a more aggressive strategy, especially early in the in the tournament. I don't think it was uh, deliberate in that we were trying to play more aggressive. It was when we were playing aggressive that was what was getting us into trouble. We generally try not to get too aggressive when we don't have last shot, which is the hammer. And then we play really aggressive when we do have it and we we were a little over aggressive without last shot early in the tournament and it was getting us into trouble with regard to the 
curling percentage thing, it's incredibly subjective because it depends on what types of shots you're playing too. And the way that they do stats for the television events are really simplistic because they're only going on make miss or how close you were to making the shot uh, and not factoring in the difficulty of the shot, which when you play in like grand slam events and major tournaments during the year, they factor in the difficulty as well. So uh, for the viewer at home, looking at our percentages, they probably thought that we weren't playing nearly as well as our record would imply, like when we got to 5-4. and four, I think our shooting percentages were the lowest of the final four teams, but a lot of that is because we're playing with a lot more rocks in play. We're making a lot more difficult shots, but the viewer's not seeing that. So it looks like we're really not playing all that great by the percentages, but if you're looking deeper into it and seeing what types of shots we're playing and what types of strategies we're doing, then you know you get a better appreciation for how well we're actually playing and, and uh, what types of situations we're putting our opponents in as much as ourselves. And to add to like what Tyler was saying with very subjective, there's oftentimes, possibly once an end, maybe once every two ends, where when you call a shot that there is a pro side miss that is almost equally as good as making the shot that's called. Uh, I had one in that uh, the eighth end against Sweden, where we were trying to, where we ended up getting a five. I was trying to come around a guard and uh, kill one of the opponent's rocks and stay in the rings. Well, John intentionally gave me tight ice, knowing that if I wreck the guard and I open it up, we might get lucky and spill my shooter in, and they're going to have to re-guard or or replace, deal with that new situation. And that's what happened. But I probably got. A zero out of four on that shot. Yeah, I guarantee they that, probably gave him a low percentage. And that rock that spun into the rings moved the guard over, which helped us and went into the rings and ended up scoring a point yeah. at the end of the end. And he probably got zero credit for it. So those are the types of things that unless you have top-level stats people on it that recognize that, then you know it, it's usually more amateur people that they have for something like this, and, and they're just not going to see that. Yeah, and it also does seem like so much of it is dependent on your role, and you know you'll get like a one hundred percent for throwing like a guard or something like that. It right. seems like when obviously if you're making some of the shots like you guys hit, uh, like in that five ender uh, where it was just like this double takeout that seemed incredibly difficult to do. I mean, you could tell me how tough that was, and that was also a one hundred percent. But it seemed like not every one hundred percent is kind of created equal, but it looks the same in the in the stats at the end. Yeah, it's funny. Like, uh, for instance, a lot of times you'll see that teams that are behind, like even early in the week, we'd start two and four. And this is taking nothing away from my buddy John Lansdowne over here. But, I mean, when you're elite and you're sitting there throwing corner guard after corner guard, the the spot where you can throw it to get 100% is from an inch outside of the house to, you know, probably a foot or two over the hog line. And it can be anywhere in an area of like three feet wide, and they'll give you four out of four. But, you know, then you get some certain shots. Yeah, they, Oh, they didn't? Oh. Okay, sorry, but uh, I, this is a general example. But then, you know, you have a shot where, you know, you might be drawing for two at the end of an end. Like, I can be throwing a draw for two, and I need to hit the absolute, like, I have to hit the one foot to count one of their rocks. And, I mean, that thing can come up, like, you know, a half an inch, or you can lose it on a measure, and uh, and you get zero out of four, even though, like, if you had thrown it even one shot earlier, and I would thrown that shot one shot earlier, I got 100% instead, you get zero percent. So things can be a little bit interesting when you look at stats that way but then there's also times where i have to hit the house for an extra point 
and I can throw it all the way to the back 12, and I'll get four out of four on it. Whereas, you know, if Lance did it earlier in the end of the lead rock, you'd have got one out of four on it. So they tend to balance out a little bit, but yeah, it's uh, just those interesting stat things. So, Nate, I want to bring you in again. Uh, are there any stats that but you quietly, sort of, Nate, yeah, quietly, careful. apparently, uh, you're having a little trouble on the plane. Uh, but are there, are there any stats that, like, if you were kind of consulting, would you, like, invent a new stat for curling or kind of improve upon something that you saw or anything like that? I'm mean, actually wondering, you know, is there, like, curling win percentage? Did you guys have a sense when you were, I think, two and four, did you have a sense for, like, what the chances were and how difficult that was, or did you not think about it that much? We're looking at that stuff all the time just because, you know, you, you want to know if you're still in the tournament or not. But we're, we're usually taking it game by game. As long as we know we're still alive, um, we're going to play everybody as hard, even if we're eliminated. But uh, we, we looked at the, the other teams ahead of us, who they played and everything like that. We mapped it out, and we knew we were still alive. And we also look at our winning percentages against other teams, too, just because going into the tournament, we knew that we had a good record against basically every team. Uh, I think Scotland was the only team that had a winning record against us over the last two years. So, I mean, going into the tournament, we felt confident against just, against just about every team we played, and the Swedes in particular, too. I mean, everybody talks about the monumental upset in the last game. Well, the last six times we played those guys, we beat them five. So, I mean, it's it's a matchup thing for us, too. And... Uh, you know, we don't mind people thinking that it was a big upset. It's a better story that way. But you know, we we beat Canada three times in a row. We beat the Swedes five out of six. Sometimes it's just matchups as good as anything else. Yeah, that was three in a row against the Cruz too, right? Against, yeah, three in a row against, against the Swiss, Swiss guys too. So. Yeah, and it seemed like, uh, especially in the Sweden match, that it was something where you almost used their own aggression against them at certain points. Certainly in that big end that you guys had. I mean, always. That's uh, yeah. that's those guys. Like they play. Their last two guys can throw it extremely hard, extremely accurate, and a lot of times they leave a lot of rocks sitting around that, you know, maybe a lot of other teams wouldn't do. And you know, our team has a really has a knack of getting rocks around and, and making them chase. And, and we knew that if we can get those guys chasing, that sooner or later, you know, you're going to get a chance if we can if if the score is close and we have the hammer and they're and they're chasing that they're going to have to gamble really hard in one particular spot. And uh, Landsteiner over there set us up in that in that end and. You know, they threw two center guards, which is an extremely aggressive strategy. And as soon as he threw that, that his second rock into the top eight foot, I mean, again, their their margin for error in that position gets so small. And uh, and they kept on going to the well, and we kept on digging them out of there and keeping our rocks around, and they count them up, man. Yeah, it's uh, if you think about it like in terms of like a poker game, you're trying to put yourself in the best spots for big wins, you know, like pot odds they talk about. So if we're continuing to load rocks up in the house and put these guys in tough spots, they're great shooters. They're going to get themselves out of trouble a lot of the time. But we only got to crack them once. You know, if they make one big mistake or even one semi-big mistake, it didn't take much that end. Uh, we just keep positioning rocks in spots where we know they're going to be up against it at some point. Maybe we don't end up getting them until later in the game, but uh, it wasn't the first time in that game that they were in trouble. That was just the first time that they made the mistake that gave us the big end. And that's the that's what we've been able to do against that team in particular, is continue to pressure them until we get the mistake that they crack on. And then when we don't have hammer, we don't give them the same opportunity. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the strategy of things. Um, and, and you spoke a little bit about maybe talking uh, to some stats experts before the tournament. Is there anything that you've noticed? First of all, what's like the biggest change in the game over the years and the way that it's played maybe strategically? And, and were any of those sort of influenced by you know numbers or anything like that? By the way, before you answer, I'm told Nate has to go. So Nate, do you have anything to say uh, before, before you have to head out and, and fly away? 
Yeah, so I just want to say, you know, thanks again. We're super proud of you guys, and it's great that you came on. So thank you. Thanks. We'll be in touch, Nate, and I'm sure we'll be able to do something better with you in the future here. Cool, man. All right, thanks, Nate. <laughs> thanks, Nate. Thanks, y'all. So anyway, uh, go, going back to the game, uh, what's like your favorite strategic innovation over the years, and how much of that do you think is informed by, if not just outright number crunching, just sort of like being able to track more things? Because I saw, like I was looking at the stats, and all the breakdowns are very dizzying, not only just counterclockwise versus clockwise turn, but like in every possible situation, there's like a split for everything, it seems like it can kind of break down your numbers. So has that influenced the game, do you think? Or is it still sort of like people kind of flying by the seat of their pants? So I think uh, these numbers are, I think they're ahead of kind of the time right now. I'm sure with like moving forward in this next cycle, you're going to see a lot more people looking at stats, using these numbers, and maybe trying to like find advantages in it. We looked at some really basic stats. And like I said, uh, our guy who talked to us about them, got us in some basic stats and and scenario stats, uh, which were very helpful. Uh, beginning of the season, he was explaining how Peter DeCruz, the Swiss team that we had played in one of our last round robin games, had such a solid win record when he got a good lead. So granted, you'd never want to let a team get a lead, but it's nice to know that maybe play a little more conservative, make sure you keep it close and, to, and bide your time a little bit to crack him for a big one rather than if you go big and you get burned on it early – He's very good at defending that lead, and you have a very small chance of winning. So we definitely use those numbers maybe subconsciously. I mean, I thought it was conscious efforts. Um, but I think moving forward in this next cycle and, and like kind of in the future, when now that these numbers are more available and more ready to use and accessible, we're going to see a lot more people maybe trying to apply different strategies to different situations and different teams and different games. It's going to be yeah. really... There's a, there's a major change coming up next season, too, where they're literally changing the rules in the game, where stats are going to have to be applied to figure out what the best strategies are. What's uh, the change? Uh, well, in, in previous years, and this started in the early 80s, they created a rule called the Moncton Rule. It's the free guard zone. Mm -hmm. So you if there's a shot placed between the hog line and the house in the first four shots of the end, it cannot be taken out of play. You can move it around, but you can't hit it out of play, or it's as if the shot never happened. It goes back, and you move on to the next shot. They're changing that to a five-rock rule next year. So it doesn't seem like much. It's only one more rock that you can't take out of play, but it completely changes the strategy of how you start ends out. And they've been using it in Grand Slam events so far, so you see it maybe like six, seven times a year. And teams are still kind of tinkering with strategy on how to defend, especially. Uh, it's a way more offensive game. That You almost have to play offense all the time with five rock as opposed to four. And, I mean, we could go into you know the intricate details of it here, but I don't think people really want to hear that right now as much as just that teams are still figuring out how to play that right now. So stats are going to be huge in figuring out the best ways to go about defending, especially with this new strategy because we just haven't done it that much. You know, it's it's really new. If there's a change in any sport, you're immediately going to figure out what the best route is to go with it. And uh, it's it's kind of going on the fly right now. It's been a static strategy for the most part in the last 30 years with a few, you know, uh, changes here and there. But you can kind of map out ends from the beginning with the four rock rule right now. You know how it's going to go if each team makes their shots. And with five rock, it's kind of all over the map. So it's going to be really interesting to see where stats come into play for that over the next few years. 
So that's the future of playing the game itself. Um, so I wanted to kind of shift gears and talk about the future of curling fandom. I wrote a piece during the Olympics uh, that sort of looked at the ebbs and flows of interest, search in, search traffic interest in uh, in curling. And it was the sport that spiked the highest during the months in which Winter Olympics take place, but then had the biggest drop-off between that and months in which there were no Winter Olympics. So it's sort of like kind of a good problem to have because at least people are interested in it, like sports like biathlon, for instance, didn't really move the needle that much during Olympic months because nobody's kind of concerned about it either way. But I was wondering what you guys think the future is, especially in light of winning the gold. Do you think that that is going to have an impact that you can kind of measure on people's interest in curling between Olympics and, and kind of get people excited in the game? Or what has to happen in order for that to take place, do you think? I mean, I think you're going to see it because uh, with the ratings that we were getting during the Olympics and the ratings we've been getting with Curling Night in America the last couple of years, I know like what happens is is we haven't had the the national television coverage theoretically between Olympic cycles, and all of a sudden every Olympics we get more and more coverage and the co- and the ratings get better and better, and then all of a sudden you know now we have you know like NBC Sports Network ran Curling Night in America, and and so then we had a weekly show going on um, after we won the gold, I believe. Uh, that they picked up that they're going to show one live game every single day during the Worlds that are coming up here in Vegas. And so, you know, that's going to be on the forefront of people's minds, and it's just going to take... You know, I think I think curling right now could be on a trajectory of something like poker was 10 years ago, and um, all of a sudden, if the World Championships is, is high-quality entertaining TV this year, like, people are going to demand it more, and we're going to start seeing it on a what I think may, might be more of a regular basis uh, moving forward. And I know that there's been talks... We Ty was saying that about the Grand Slam series, which is like the big money ter- tournaments in Canada are put on by Rogers Sportsnet, and I know that there's been American sports networks since then um, contacting them and trying to figure out, okay, how can we get um, your feed and get this um, onto American networks because there's interest in it. I, I think we're going to be seeing that change, and that change is going to come with televised coverage for sure. And in the in the abstract too, I mean, the numbers certainly uh, play it out, but just talking to people about watching the game uh we've come back to this so many times when we when we discuss it is that every four years in the past it seems to be a a curiosity for people and then it goes away really quickly but the passion that people are talking about it now like the, the way that they're talking to us about watching the games and uh how excited they were and and how they're actually figuring out what's going on. They're not just saying, hey, you guys did great, congratulations. They're saying, I really genuinely enjoyed watching the games. I was up in the middle of the night watching these things. You know, there there is a base here for viewership going forward just based on the reactions of people that we didn't see in 2006, 2010, 2014. It's a totally different attitude towards uh, just viewing the game and getting excited to watch it and, and identifying with the players too. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the uh, the attitude because it did seem like maybe at first during the Olympics people sort of take on like this ironic fandom because it is such a sport that if you haven't played it or you didn't grow up with it, it just seems like kind of a curiosity to use your word, Tyler. Uh, but it it does seem like it's kind of transferring from being more ironically appreciated to being genuinely appreciated as people start to actually like learn the rules and get into it. Yeah, and I think uh, I think also the right now the accessibility to curling clubs is growing immensely in our country. Um, you know, we've uh, our association works incredibly hard to to help clubs start up, and then you get these startup clubs, and and now there's more access too for for the people that have that curiosity or you know want to go throw a rock. I mean, we got dedicated ice facilities over the last quad 
Um, maybe maybe Rick over can give me a signal. I, I feel like there's probably somewhere between 10 and 20 dedicated. How many? 40. 40 dedicated ice facilities that were built in our country over the last quad. And that was, you know, with this little bit of a curiosity attitude. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see 40 to to 100 more. And, and we have an association that honestly is extremely helpful to people out there in, in getting those clubs started. And, uh, yeah, and there's there's momentum right now. to. Uh, it, it's an incredible opportunity to to go out and, and take part in in, a, in our sport, which is incredibly fun to play and has a great camaraderie. And for some reason, no matter where a club pops up, if nobody's ever been a curler, the same, like, values pop in. And, uh, and we've seen that, like I said, in, in some of these new places like Charlotte, Atlanta, Hollywood. Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood. Uh, I mean, San Francisco, I think, out there in Oregon. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're seeing it everywhere. And it's, it's just been a lot of fun to see the growth of curling actually as a participation level as well. Yeah, we actually got two separate invites in the last week after I wrote the story about the popularity uh, during the Olympics uh, to go to curling clubs. Uh, I think one was in New Jersey. I'm not sure where the other one was. Uh, so I was going to ask, what would your advice be to a first-time curler uh, taking the taking the ice for the first time? My best advice would be don't fall. <laughs> Go well, they've got with, shoes for that, right? The one shoe, at least, for that. You know, they do, but my first game at the Olympics, I fell. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, so I people, saw that. People fall. Down goes Hamilton. Don't, yeah, don't go down. It's 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 still hard ice. Uh, but in, in seriousness, is uh, if, if you go in with an open mind and are really, like, curious about the sport itself, like, not just the throwing aspect, but, like, actually, like, kind of immersing yourself in what curling's about... And you find all the like these people that are so willing to help and teach, and really get you into the strategy. Which, really, that's the draw. Like speaking for myself, but I'm sure a lot of the guys here would agree. Like making shots is great, and that it felt good when you made your first couple shots in curling when you've tried it. But like when you finally learn why you're throwing that shot and why making that shot set you up later in the end and later in the game to win, it's really just a remarkable feeling it's it's really is like chess on ice and it just kind of that like mental game mixed with a finesse game mixed with you know brute force of sweeping like it really has all the aspects of a really like fun game i think if there's one thing that we'd want to get across to people thinking about starting to play it'd be that when when you become a part of a curling club or just the curling community as a whole, it's like a brotherhood, and it's so widespread. I mean, it's not just even within our own country. You know, I went to a bachelor party in Oslo for one of the Norwegian guys. Two of the Swedes came to Matt's wedding last summer. Uh, it, this is stuff you see all the time with curling, you know, and if you're a curler and you go to a town that has a curling club, you got a place to stay. It doesn't matter if they know you or not. You know, it's just that's the type of people that you're going to see all the time in our sport. And I think that kind of comes across, and when you watch us play, even at the Olympics, I mean, we're out there trying to have fun, you know, enjoy the game, and you know, we're hugging the Swedes after the game because they're our boys, you know. I mean, it's 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 tough that we got to play those games against good friends, but but that's what makes the sport so great, you know. And at some point, when we're not playing, I'm sure we're all going to miss the people more than we're going to miss the sport, like you know, first and foremost. But anybody that comes in, you know, if you're a first year player. And you come into a club where maybe, you know, Matt, you know, you meet him down in Madison or you meet me and John and Joe and Lance Steiner up in Duluth. We'll be there with open arms, you know. We got time to take with you. We'll sit down with you. We'll we'll, we'll play a league with you. You know, that's just the way that guys are at every level of the game. And 
you're just going to be a part of a community that you're not going to find uh, anywhere else in sports. And I, I think that's the the main thing we'd like people to know about curling. I mean, 100%. I think about the curling is one of those things where you go and you play bonds, like bonspiel is a curling name for tournament, but there's a bonspiel is more than a tournament. And, uh, yeah, and, and you see people that travel at both the high levels and, and even the recreational levels. We have a uh, we have a charity event that we run in Duluth that is a celebrity charity event, and we get skips from all over the world coming in, and um, and people can sign up and, and to play with them. And, you know, it's in Duluth, but we have... What's that called? The House of Arts. Yeah, and what's the charity? <laughs> Project Joy. Perfect. <laughs> which fills backpacks for uh, for kids with hunger. And it's, it's a local charity, but... But yeah, we get these celebrities and people, I mean, people raising money for these things and coming in. We have over a dozen people coming in from California. We have, I think only of the 96 participants, only like 40 are from, or 30 might even be from our home club. And the rest are coming in from all over the world. And they're people that, again, like Ty said, we go, we travel anywhere and we always have a place to stay. That's not just me. That's anybody from our club that meets any of these people. That's fantastic uh, to hear, uh, especially for people like us who are kind of contemplating sort of taking it up or, or, or trying it out. Um, yeah, we'll take you too. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm not uh, so sure about Nate, though. Speaking of Nate and, and these kind of curling superfans that sort of crawled out of the woodwork, I have to ask, what was sort of the strangest celebrity fan or, or a person that, that you were made aware of being into curling either during these Olympics or just uh, overall in, in your time playing? Oh, there's been a lot of them so far. I mean, we'll each have one for you, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> the one that got me the most was uh, after we won the gold. Uh, we were in a van on our way to our media stuff that we had to do all night. And uh, Rick, our CEO, sitting behind you there, handed us the phone says, somebody wants to congratulate you guys and hands the phone up and the voice comes over kind of gravelly like, uh, hey, guys, uh, this is Dave Grohl. Uh, <laughs> I just landed in Brazil, and I just wanted to tell you guys how proud we are. Uh, and we've been watching all the games, and uh, you guys are doing great. And it just we're like, oh, thanks, Dave Grohl. That's that's really cool. Yeah, thanks, you missed an expletive or two in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah just, I mean, little things like that. That that one really hit hard for me because that's I'm a big fan. And uh, you know, just to know that guys like that are watching, that's that's just insane for us. You know, but I'm sure these guys get other ones too. One of my favorites uh, was. I saw a Wisconsin boy like myself, J.J. Watt, wearing a curling shirt that he tweeted. And I immediately responded like, hey, J.J., here you're into curling. Like, you want to wish a fellow Wisconsin boy some luck? And like within the hour, he had responded back. And that gave me the idea, like, maybe I should ask for luck from like one of my favorite football players ever. And I asked Aaron Rodgers, and I got it. And then after we won, he quoted one of my tweets and just wrote, win hashtag power of the stash <laughs> that just like made my the whole event <laughs> like the medal was great but aaron Rodgers. <laughs> oh lord i'm just kidding <laughs> and and i mean it's well documented like uh, with uh with mr t and uh and his deal with curling but yeah it's it was awesome and he was he was he gave us that you know pep talk before the uh before our gold medal match and uh yeah and and it was also i mean very interesting to see like when people, I mean, the the most famous thing that happened probably during the whole thing was was Kirstie Alley tweeting that curling <laughs> right. is boring, 
and the wrath that came out of people, not just curlers, <laughs> but of curling fans. Like she literally, after like two million people like disliked it, that kind of thing, had to delete the dang tweet. And she was a good sport about it. Oh, after, we, yeah, but. we've mended fences there. She wants to come out and try the game now too. But, so, so everybody can leave Kirsty alone. Everything's good. <laughs> but just to see, just to see the backing. I mean, it, like a nation stood behind us for like, hey, don't you, I, don't you be talking about. Bash on curlers. <laughs> yeah, thank you, America. That was, that yeah. was really nice. <laughs> yeah, that really shows how, how we get behind you know people uh, people who win and also yeah just the the spirit that we curling... weren't even winning when that happened. That was... Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, it was early on. Yeah, it's just that the spirit. The, that was the turnaround. We felt America behind us. Yeah, that's and and we really should should note that too uh, that traveling around the country now. I mean, when we went home, we expected things to be pretty crazy, and and they were. And people were, you know, so proud. And it's our loved ones and family. People we see all the time. Duluth's, you know, like 100,000 people, but it's like a small town. You know everybody there. So it really feels like you're, you're one big family and you're doing it for everybody. But then we come out here to New York and uh, we're thinking that things are going to cool down. People aren't, you know, going to pay nearly as much attention. And we can't hardly go anywhere without people recognizing us. And it's not just that they recognize us and congratulate us. Like, they do it with a, a genuine... Uh, fondness for what we did and you know saying things like you know we're, we were behind you all the way we're proud to be americans you know we really needed that we went on jimmy fallon and before we went on the air he, he met us in the hallway and said in, in all honesty uh that with the way things are going right now in the world like america needed you guys and to hear something like that from a guy who sees you know the most famous people on the planet on a consistent basis you know and have him look us in the eyes and really mean what he's saying it, it doesn't really register for us at the time, you know, even though we have all the support in the world, it just feels like a wave of support for a sporting event. And then you get done with it and you, you know, you get to do stuff like this and, and people say things like that. And whether it's Jimmy Fallon or or Joe on the street, you know, it still registers the same for us. And uh, just to be able to do something that people really got behind and, and has meaning to people is something we've never gotten to experience with our sport or any other with anything else we've done in life. So, it's uh, I I think if you're going to be proud of anything through all this, that has to be at the top of the list. Well, yeah, we were we were really excited uh, that you guys agreed to come and, and talk to us too. But we watched you. You guys are celebrities to us uh, from from television throughout the last uh, month or so. Um, so I think uh, we're going to leave it there. But again, congrats to all of you, and uh, we're going to have to put you in touch with Nate to uh, develop some some curling uh, win probability models and and uh, various other stats. We'll sit him down with Jerry and uh, have those two go nose to nose with it for a while. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just like to film that. And listen, that'd be great. <laughs> so this might be a shameless plug, but everyone should go to Las Vegas and watch the men's world championships in the United States. It's, it's in Vegas, people. It's in Vegas. Vegas. It's at the Orleans Arena. It's an amazing event. It's the first week in uh, first week in first April. First week in April, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's very well run. We'll be there for a short time. We'll be doing. I'm sure there will be some autograph signings and some meet and greets. If you uh, and some Q and A's, if you got anything for us, but it's just a fantastic event and anything to help promote the sport in the U.S especially when we get to host a world championship, is just wonderful. So go to Vegas, enjoy Vegas, watch some curling. Come cheer along the USA with us. Come cheer along the USA, meet some gold medalists, and have a good time. Well said, Matthew. Good job. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Thanks again, guys. We've been talking to John Schuster, Matt Hamilton, and Tyler George of the U.S. Olympic curling team. They won gold in Pyeongchang and sparked a bit of curling fandom here at the 538 office as well as around the entire country. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our conversation, and we'll be back with your regular programming in this very feed.